This is the Edge of Innovation, Hacking the Future of Business. I'm your host, Paul Parisi. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with design researcher and author Victor Yako about his new book, Design for the Mind, Seven Principles of Persuasive Design. Over the next few episodes, we're going to explore the principles taught in Victor's book and really try to get to the heart of psychology and web design. Victor, welcome. Was there an aha moment as you as you came out of this? When was the aha moment? Well, so specifically around writing the book? Well, no, more so the realization that your, your need to be an effective communicator and how it translated... I mean, because obviously the book came about at a certain point in time, but before that you had formative thoughts. And sure. So what was what happened, or was it just an epiphany? Well, I don't think I, I, I don't have any great epiphany story. I would love to say standing in front of the elephants one yes, day. Yes, exactly. But I, but uh, I would say as as a body of projects that I was a part of. I had a a really good advisor who re- in grad school who really got me a lot of hands-on experience and a job doing work in the setting that I was also doing my research. And I think that it's something that as I look at, you know, how I can give guidance to other people who are coming up in our field, whether or not they want to engage in research or design, but it's engaging with people was very eye-opening for me. Having to understand that people will feed off of you and people will respond to you in a way that reflects how you are approaching them. Mm -hmm. The way you present a topic is critical. You know, if you run up to somebody in a zoo who's obviously not there to engage in any type of research knowingly and you say, please take my survey, like that's, Mm -hmm. that's one way of doing it. But if you make it you know, something much more approachable and you make somebody feel comfortable with who you are and you ask them if they're willing to spend a couple minutes with you, then you you get a completely different response. Even if it's the person you thought when you were approaching them, oh man, they look grumpy and like they're in a rush. So really seeing over time that a lot of these principles that I was learning are implemented sort of subconsciously when right. we want to interact effectively with people. And then, you know, you see examples that are a little more blatant and also can be off-putting, like the used car sales sure. pitch or right. something like that, which is where I think persuasion and that word really can can come across as off-putting to people. But that from an academic perspective, persuasion is just taking information and presenting it in a certain way that provides your side of the story that provides people with an argument for why they should consider doing or thinking the way you're asking them to. And it doesn't involve anything like coercion or forcing somebody, which is where we get into, you know, people often ask me about, well, what do you think about, about dark patterns of design? And that those are much more like trickery and Mm -hmm. coercion versus a persuasive technique says, Hey, I think a certain way, and you should too, or I'd like you to think this way, or I'd like you to engage in this, and here's why. And it sort of wraps that information in a container that uses a persuasive technique, but it doesn't say, hey, I'm dropping you off here on this site, and the only way you can get out is to check this opt-in box that that will allow you to then start receiving emails 10 times a day or have your credit card being billed. Uh, monthly, unless you call call in instead of being able to cancel it online. So, mm-hmm. I, I do try to draw a distinction, which I think there's 
a subtle distinction to some people, but I'm I'm comfortable saying that I don't think persuasion is necessarily dark patterns or right. that it's engaging in any kind of trickery if you're sticking to what the true value of persuasion should be from an academic perspective. Yeah, I would agree. Now, many of the things that you've said, once you say them, we, we have a joke in the office that, you know, when you say something and it's like, well, that's obvious. Well, it wasn't obvious before you said it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's uh, it's not like, uh, I mean, and, but I think many of the things that you're, you've talked about in the book and that we're going to talk about today, once somebody hears them, they're going to say that's obvious. Right. But before then, they're not. And so, you know, how do you, uh, you know, I th- well, one of the things I think is great is that you have taken all the obvious things and given us a very good roadmap with a lot of case studies so that we can take the, just persuasion, you should be persuasive uh, is a good Mm -hmm. example. Well, duh, of course you should be. But if you don't say it, and I would imagine as I've looked at websites and you've looked at websites, you say that probably a large majority of them fail at their persuasiveness. Right. And I think that, so I like how you summarize that, which is a lot of it is obvious. And I think that I I state that fairly obviously in my book as well, which is a lot of what you'll see from a psychological perspective, you'll think of is either maybe common sense or mm-hmm. also like you naturally do that. And what, what, have, what a book like Design for the Mind does, I think, that can be helpful is it also gives you the language behind what you're doing and it gives you an understanding. So it's not just, Oh, Hey, people enjoy looking at what other people are doing. And so that's why social media can be effective. Mm -hmm. It's like people develop a social identity. And part of that is they compare themselves to others. And when they see people that they align with, they want to know more and they want to engage in that type of behavior. And when they see people that they don't feel like they align with, They want to do behaviors that make them more different from those people. And then all of a sudden you understand, okay, why does this work or why might this not be currently working, but how can you fix it? And I think it also can make you sound a lot more intelligent in front of a client or if you're pitching your colleagues for something and you can bring in some language that actually describes why you think your idea would be effective. Well, I think that's important to highlight. So somebody that's not a PhD in psychology or even you know, has ever took a psychology course. I mean, it's like electronics. In electronics, it's one of the things I'm fascinated with, you know, there's resistors and capacitors, and we have ways to describe those with units and measures and all those, all that technical lingo. And what you're saying, I think, in Design for the Mind and making it accessible to the average person, the average web designer, and even the experienced one, is there is a set vocabulary and there are meanings to that vocabulary. Is, is that true or am I off base? No, you're correct. And each chapter that covers concepts has a specific section where I say this is how you would – this is examples of how you would talk about this principle in a way that doesn't come across as condescending or would get you in trouble because right. you're going to start using words that you don't know what they mean but is like – here it, it can be made approachable right. in a way that your banking – client, your banking project manager that you work with can say, oh, heck, I I really understand what you're saying. And I think this is going to be a great idea because of that. And that's really what I would like, you know, one contribution of the book to be is that even if somebody read through it and said, yeah, this is all, this is all really obvious and I'm doing it, then 
but they could also say, and now I understand why it works <laughs> or how to talk about it. And that I think in itself is something that can be valuable um, as setting you apart and, and helping your process to understand, okay, this is what I'm doing. And maybe hopefully somebody who is super motivated would want to go find out more and go right. beyond what I cover in the book because there's so much psychology and research, some good, some bad that's out there that you could continue, you know, you could write an encyclopedic set of books on psychological principles, whether or not I would want to would be another question. <laughs> exactly, but, yeah. Well, I think one of the things that I want to pull out for our listeners is the fact that you're not inventing these psychological principles. These are well-worn principles that are well-established. What you're doing is putting them into a context so that people who are interested in communicating via the internet, the web, can effectively apply these principles. And just talk about that a little bit, because somebody, you know, you're not inventing anything here. So it's not like, right. oh, he's got some crazy idea about this, and this is the way things work. No, you're not doing that. What you're doing is you're taking it and, you know, developing it for somebody like me who doesn't know or have a depth of knowledge there, and allowing me to understand sort of, you know, unwrapping a Christmas present and saying, oh my gosh, this is, I now have a language that I can now quantify all the things I've been thinking about. Right. And you, and you heard it from Paul. Uh, the book is the equivalent of a Christmas present. So there you go. go it's a great one. Christmas present. But beyond that, so yes, exactly. And I think this will, I can jump into my sort of story and, and catch people up to date in terms of where I came from zoos. Yeah, and, yeah and exactly. To, well, certainly so, by talking through that. So I working with zoos, working with zoo educators, working with art educators, working with people whose main job is to work with people and try to deliver content to them. I realized as an academic, as somebody who was going to school to get my PhD, that there's two completely different languages that are spoken between practitioners and academics. Now, again, that's fairly obvious. We, we all know the whole like ivory tower versus real life. And so I became fairly proficient at translating what I was becoming familiar with in my academic studies to the real world scenario of on the ground at an art museum or a zoo or a science center. And so a few years after that, I, I was offered a job to come uh, do research in, with Intuitive, where I'm at now, in digital settings. And I really had no idea what user experience was or what digital design was. And that wasn't why I was hired. In, in the beginning, I was hired because I had a really good research background and I was able to convey that I could quickly learn you know, the language of design and that I had a history of working closely with practitioners because how intuitive is set up is that researchers research, designers design, and they work together on projects to inform each other. So I have close colleagues who are designers on all my projects and they attend different research activities and I download what I find to them and we work together to conceptualize the findings into recommendations, but my background wasn't that I was going to come in and start designing solutions to anything. I was going to create studies and translate data into meaningful recommendations. And what I realized once I got here, though, was what you said earlier was, wow, everything that I've learned that you apply in this zoo setting to communicate to people can be instantly 
applied to with some minor modifications a digital setting and how we want people to behave you know we might not have some noble goal of preventing the extinction of of a specific species but we want people to understand why they should be using online bill pay mm-hmm. or why they should be signing up for their accounts online versus using pen and paper and that if we're going to try to promote these behaviors we need to account for the psychology of users in those settings and i gave an internal presentation around the elaboration likelihood model here where i work at intuitive and it sort of it just sparked me from there that I pitched an article on the topic to a list apart, and they said it sounded good. And from there, I sort of entered this realm of writing around a topic of applying psychology to design that I'd never really thought as being something that I was as passionate about as I turned out to be, or really that I was as, uh, I guess, effective at conveying to a practitioner what these academic principles meant. And so that's where then the idea that I could turn in enough content around to turn right. it into a book came from. And so did you think you were qualified? That's a good question. I didn't necessarily care, I guess, mm-hmm. but I I figured from an academic standpoint I was qualified to talk about the principles that I had enough familiarity and I had written about them and studied them for years that that part didn't concern me. It was more, do I have the qualifications to be accepted as a colleague of designers? And every day that went by, I was getting more experience in that realm and working with some really top-notch designers on a regular basis was helping to build my confidence. And then also seeing how I could look at the work we were doing and identify how the principles would be playing out or where they might be more effective if they were applied. So that that was something that helped with, I guess, boosting my level of feeling like I could be someone who wrote that book. And it seemed to be a space that I was very comfortable in, which meant a lot to me as far as wanting to keep moving forward. Were there um, times where you ruffled feathers of designers where you were saying something wasn't as effective as maybe they thought it should be or would be? Well, I guess that I'd have to say that no, because I can't think of anything specifically where I butted heads with anybody. I I think that the designers that I work with, I tend to have a pretty good relationship when it comes to back and forth. Mm -hmm. And so while I definitely try to put out the the psychology and accounting for the users at all times that like when a decision gets made and I make sure that my voice is heard, I think that beyond that I I, I don't have a lot of uh, pushback, I guess. Sure. Uh, when we a lot of times what we have the luxury of doing, is also engaging in some level of usability testing. Mm-hmm. And so that can also help. I put out in the book that, you know, I understand, again, we look at the what what works best on paper. And then when you look at reality, things are totally different that we all want to include, or most of us at least, want to include research as part of our process. Mm-hmm. And the the sad truth can be that sometimes that doesn't happen and psychology can be a way of trying to sort of prop that up or be a proxy when we don't have 
direct data that we've collected from users and potential users. But usually I find myself in a situation here where we have built a project that will at least include usability testing once we've started moving forward with something. Often we have upfront research where we're able to do interviews or contextual inquiry or really go in and start to understand what the product is because we're client facing. We don't have our own product. But when I've ever encountered something that I've thought, okay, this could use some tweaking, we've put it into a testing scenario to try to see what exactly would be best. And and that sort of removes the personal Mm -hmm. from from it when you can look at it. Uh, Next time, we're going to continue our interview with Victor and delve deeper into some of these concepts. But we really encourage you to uh, get a copy of Victor's book, um, Design for the Mind, Seven Principles of Persuasive Design. Uh, I found it incredibly insightful and very helpful.